Hey there, Romantics. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabel. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you'd like to support us even more, please tell your friends or your mom. And subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite listening app. We also have a Patreon if you'd like to give us some financial support. If not, we get it. No worries. All of our content is free for all of our listeners. Thank you again for your support of Womance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Morgan. I'm Isabel. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About fan fiction more often than not, it seems. About adult relationships with our parents. About folk music hatred. About the vagaries of Twitter and social media. About food. About the hedonistic feeling of the getting to know you phase. About the hedonistic feeling of getting teen revenge on your parents. (laughs) About cons. Most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we're doing Spoiler Alert by Olivia Dade. All right, why don't you read the back of the book for us? Certainly. Marcus Castor Rupp has a secret. The world may know him as Aeneas, star of the biggest show on television, but fan fiction readers will call him something else. Book Aeneas would never... Marcus releases his frustrations with the show by writing and posting anonymous stories about the internet's favorite couple, Aeneas and Lavinia. But if anyone were to discover his online persona, he'd be finished in Hollywood. April Whittier has secrets of her own. A hardcore Lavinia fan, she's long hidden her fanfic and cosplay hobbies from her quote-unquote real life, but not anymore! When she dares to post her latest costume creation on Twitter, her plus-size take goes viral. And when Marcus asks her out to spite her internet critics, truth officially becomes stranger than fanfiction. On their date, Marcus quickly realizes he wants more from April than a one-time publicity stunt. But when he discovers she's unapologetic Lavinia Stan, his closest fandom friend, he has one more huge secret to keep from her. With love and Marcus's career on the line, can Marcus and April stop hiding once and for all? Or will a match-maiden fandom end up prematurely canceled? All right. So this is an Isabeau pick. It is. Isabeau... Why? Why'd you choose this one? I chose this book because it was highly recommended in the various spaces that I haunt. I also wanted to do something that felt a little creamy dreamy. It's been cold and blistery in Chicago and everything about fan fiction was something that I wanted to read in romance and see how the genre was dealing with uh, something else that I loved and see what all the hubbub was about. Okay, I have two questions from there. First question, simple yes or no, or as close to one as you can produce. Did it deliver on creamy dreamy for you? Yes. Second question, fan fiction and romance. We actually talk about fan fiction on this show a lot, and I don't know if it's because the two of us, you, a fan fiction creator, and me, someone who spent time researching it. I don't know if that's us or if it's actually the genre itself. This is definitely the first time, I think, beyond our unreleased episode where we talked about that Harry Styles real person fic. I wonder if we have the masters for those lying around anywhere. I hope so. That was bonkers. (laughs) But... This is like the most literal interaction we have with fan fiction in romance. But most literal doesn't mean all of the others weren't literal. And so I'm curious to know what is your, I think your feelings on this are going to be more relevant. Uh, Yeah, relevant than mine. (laughs) Definitely more well-rounded than mine. Do you feel like the connection between romance and fan fiction, Mm -hmm. where do you see that? And how do you see it functioning? If it does at all. I see it as a massive Venn diagram. So massive, in fact, it might be more of a circle than yeah. <laughs> a Venn diagram. Yeah. I think a lot of what happens in fanfic happens in romance as well. I think romance readers are also fanfic writers, and I think fanfic writers are also romance readers and writers. And I think the communications spheres operate in very similar ways. Like romance Twitter has a lot in common with fan postings in other kinds of forums. So like I see a lot of crossover. And I think like some of it's good. I think like there's a lot to be 
said, I think some of the easy picks for me to say are like the structure of romance, that you have a guaranteed HEA, that you have a story that's centered on two, maybe three people finding love and trying to make it work. Fan fiction also has a very particular structure. It just depends on the fandom that you're in. Like if you're in, you know, Harry Potter, you're going to be talking about magic. And if you're in Star Wars, you're going to be talking about light speed. And like having structures and scaffolding is something that both of these things have in common. Mm -hmm. But no guaranteed HEAs in fan fiction. That's true. Absolutely not. A lot of people who don't read fan fiction or haven't engaged in it don't realize that it's actually, it's a lot to sift through. Like, oh my God, yes. You know, if you go to a bookstore, there's a human being in the bookstore that can help you pick a book, but there's also tons of like mainstream publications that can help you pick a book and your friends will openly tell you about the books that they read or recommend. And the actual publication output is, I think, probably smaller than fan fiction, which is enormous. Oh, absolutely. But in fan fiction, like thinking of that meme that's like, it's free real estate, like it's free literature. Like, you know, some of it is goofy and fun, which this book talks about a little bit. Sometimes it's goofy and fun and sexy, but it's not necessarily all sexy. It's not even necessarily stories that are going to use the same characters that you're used to. Mm -hmm. They can be entirely new characters. AU alternative universe is often just like a modernization, right? Or like people in Britain love to write about the American college and high school experience. They really do. Harry Potter drank from his red solo cup and said, how about a rise in a game of beer pong? My fellow wizards. Yeah, Harry Potter, but at UNC Chapel Hill. At Pepperdine. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, yeah, people do that. And like, you know, I think part of it is interesting to me because a lot of times, especially in fics that have a lot of young people writing, they're practicing. So they'll do this thing where they say, I want to write what I know. Yeah. And what I know is the American college experience from movies that I've watched. And like, I don't know a ton about like medieval stuff. Right. So I don't feel comfortable writing in it. And I think like that's an interesting space to play. But it's also like what you feel inspired to write in. Right. And I think that inspiration, that imaginativeness, that like expansive palette is one of the good things that fan fiction and romance both traffic in when they're both good. Yeah. I think like fan fiction, even when it's angsty, even when it's dark, as it often is, still comes from a place of creating for the fantasy and for the pleasure of it. You know, which isn't to say like, you know, I I don't think Jonathan Safran Foyer doesn't enjoy writing. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if he enjoys writing every single day. Mm -hmm. And I think people who write fan fiction do it because they enjoy it every single time. Every single time they sit down to type something out or this is a throwback, but, you know, writing in a notebook, in a spiral notebook during school and then coming home and typing it out into your computer. Like that's true love, I think. I think people confuse a true love for the universe or the work that fan fiction is referencing. But I think it's a true love for like writing itself, imagining itself. And what the canon piece provides is basically just like a foothold. A backdrop. Something that you felt inspired by and you want to apply your craft to. But I think one really big difference between romance and fan fiction is that fan fiction, the process is totally transparent, which gets us into our relationship between our hero and our heroine, where they are mutual beta readers for each other. What's a beta reader, Isabeau? A beta reader is like an editor, somebody who's reading your work before you publish it on a place like Archive of Our Own or fanfiction.net. And they're going to be reading for plot holes. They also sometimes are really good copy editors. Like if you have a beta reader, it's somebody who is making sure that the work that you're producing is as good as it can be. Right. But not necessarily for grammar and spelling and things like that, which is important because our hero is dyslexic and he writes via dictation and he reads via. uh, It's like Dragon Speak. It's the program. That's not what they call it in here, but it, it reads the text for him. Yeah. Reads out loud. So he listens to the text. So he works. He is the lead actor in a thinly veiled cipher for Game of Thrones, which is a prestige television series based on a popular series of fantasy novels. This one is referencing Greek 
Greek mythology. Although it goes on to say that this series is set in a medieval type setting. And then they throw in like to capitalize on Game of Thrones popularity, which I think was like a soft lob towards like this isn't Game of Thrones, even though so much of it is Game of Thrones down to the showrunners names in the book, which well, even this guy like he's Marcus Castor Rupp is Jamie Lannister's actor, like Nicholas Coster Waldo, right? Waldo. Yeah, exactly. It's not thinly veiled. It is like beat for beat. And that's on purpose. That's a conscious move. Like the author even says some. Um, well, it's very fan fiction. However, in this book series, Jamie Lannister is the central character. And Brienne is his love interest, and that's explicit through the character Brienne Cipher. So basically, our hero is a fan of the book series for the television adaptation on which he works. He gets frustrated as an actor with his character arc. So he starts writing fix-it fiction, which is basically fan fiction as rebuttal to canon. He becomes a part of this community on a private fan server. And that's where he meets our heroine for the first time. And they become beta readers for each other. Right. So her thing is unapologetic Lavinia Stan. And so his nickname for her in the fandom is Ulsie. And so they have cute nicknames for each other. They very much have Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Robert Browning, Cyrano de Bergerac, love relationship through epistles, through reading each other's work, through commenting on each other's work, through talking through stuff in the fan forum and private messages to each other. So they have a very strong, years-long established relationship before they meet IRL. And a relationship that comes from, once again, sort of forced, but also necessary and warm relationship between writers and editors. And the reason I say it's more transparent than romance is that they publish exclusively on archive of our own, shortened to AO3 throughout most of this novel. This novel is very insidery on the fan fiction language. Yes. And I don't think it comes with like a glossary of terms, which I think would have been helpful at the end. Or maybe it just made the assumption that only people who were like familiar with fandom would pick up this novel. Or that it wouldn't detract from the central story. That it's like set dressing. I think that would have been a fun inclusion, like a glossary as written by the heroine. That would have been cute. But I think at the beginning in your little intro, you credit your beta reader, you know, your editor, if you have one, your sources, your references. You also have this elaborate sorting and tagging system to prepare the reader for what's going to be in the work. And then you also have the comments. And oftentimes people will reference people who, you know, commented on a previous story and said, like, you needed to do this. Right. And there's a real culture around, you know, ripping assholes whenever the group decides that that's the best move, which is called flaming. It's interesting because I feel like flaming doesn't happen on AO3 the way that it did in the early 2010s. Like there would be literal flame wars on fan fiction. And like maybe it's the fandoms that I lurk on, but like that just like isn't happening and hasn't been happening for a few years. What is a flame war? Where commenters just like spam flame each other. So like, as you said, tearing someone an asshole when an asshole is going to be torn. It's like that. So someone will flame you and be like, you did everything wrong. You're stupid. Your writing sucks. And like, they'll give you like a point for point. And like flames are often very meticulous. Like that's one of the things about a good flame. It's not just like you suck. It's meticulous. And so then if someone does that to you, then you can click on their name in the comments go see what they've written and then you can start a particular kind of flame war back and forth with trolls other kinds of people have pile on flame wars where you find a really bad story and then everyone flames it right i would say on ao3 which is not the only game in town it's not the better game in town It's probably the best game in town, but fanfiction.net still exists. Wattpad, for a lot of both intents and purposes, is a fanfiction server. AO3, I think it's a little bit more scholarly and genteel, but I think flames definitely still happen on there. They do. And have a tendency towards being more scholarly and genteel, but I have seen things devolve in the comments section. Which they always do in every comment section. It's just that, especially in a space that purports to be and is so collaborative, flames function both as an enforcer 
enforcement and also potentially as gatekeeping and also as other spaces. Like flames do a lot in collaborative communities like fan fiction. I think they also do a lot in romance. Not that there is a ton of flaming. But in addition, you can go on to like message boards and see people working through different ideas of the central text. We get an example in this novel of the historical accuracy of including people of color in the television series and within fan fiction itself, which is a conversation we've heard on romance. But a lot of it's kind of like hearsay, like what did someone say at a book reading? You know, like I'm just reporting out. And I think what's interesting about fan fiction is that there's a real paper trail of development and a real transparency, a needing to like attribute your sources, not only of the material material you're molding, but also of the influences on your personal voice, on your personal writing style. Do you think that transparency that you're noting in fan fiction and noticing a lack of in romance, like that's the binary you're setting up here. Do you think that comes with the fact that fan fiction isn't primarily for sales and that there's a capitalistic reason for less transparency in romance? Yeah, I think fan fiction is a sandbox, right? And everyone kind of understands that they're toiling in the same material. Whereas I think romance, not just romance, but like publishing full stop is much more like a jewelry store where you have to create this like weird mythology around the value of the object that you're trying to sell, you know? And I think being mysterious, you know, obfuscating all of the work that goes into your work makes you come across as a more valuable writer to readers. That's really interesting. I don't know how I feel about that in the second, but I want to put a pin in that. This is something that I think I want to think about going forward as like a way to think about why there is a lack of transparency and romance around the behind the scenes work. I want to think about that. I think that's really interesting. Okay. So the reason our hero is so secretive about his fan fiction life is not only because he's kind of a big deal in one of the canonical works, but he also has a non-disclosure, an NDA in all of his contracts. And this particular contract also says you can't badmouth this series. And he's explicitly writing fix-it fiction which is meant to improve upon the problems he understands in the books. One of the things I found so fascinating is that there are a lot of characters in this novel who are actors in the TV series, right? That makes sense. But they're all like so worked up all the time about their character arc. Like they're constantly going, my character arc, my character arc. I would love to hear from an actor whether or not this is an accurate portrayal of how you perceive what your work is. But I always just assumed that like an actor's job was to be like as empathetic to the text as possible, no matter what it was. And they all have an adversarial relationship with their source material. They do. As it stands in the scripts. But they also like not only do all of these actors have an adversarial relationship with the source material, television scripts, if they're allowed to have any relationship with them at all, they also have a really dedicated relationship with the original vision of the books, which I know a lot of actors won't even read the book because they don't want to muddle their perceptions of the script. Absolutely. So the actors described in this text have an adversarial relationship with the scripts that they get at the end. And there is, again, Game of Thrones corollary. The beginning of the show based on the published text was better, more deep. The language in the scripts themselves was more interesting to speak. The action lines in the screenplays themselves had more finesse. And we see that one of the weird things that this book does is that it gives you pages from the script itself. So you have, I guess, like an objective view of what Marcus is talking about in his fan fiction and in his real life. One of the interstitials has like a script excerpt from the first season and then a script excerpt from the most recent season right next to each other. The contrast is humongous is the word I would say. And also like not something you would see written in a script for the second part. Like one of the things I found really striking about that is that like, first of all, these scripts are not written by one person on shows like this. 
You're in a professional setting. Can I read the excerpt? Please. I've got to find it first. Okay. So while you're doing that, it's not just that Marcus has an adversarial relationship with the text themselves and like this disappointment with his character arc. He has an adversarial relationship with the two showrunners who are also sort of like stand-ins for the showrunners of Game of Thrones. And they are depicted in this text as real villains. Villainous to Marcus and villainous especially to the lady actors on the show. And like they also are villainous to the fans themselves, which is all part of the way in which we understand Marcus as good person and good actor, right? He loves his fans. He participates in the fan stuff. He cares about them. And these two showrunners who are also the two head writers, but also sort of by extension of this book's argument, the only writers are villains. Right. And not just like the villains in this book are not nuanced. No. Their motivations can be summarized as being bad people. So, for example, the show creators who I can't remember their names off the top of my heads, but are clearly Nicholas Coster Waldo, like they're obviously direct references to the showrunners of Game of Thrones. And they hire a handler for our hero's best friend, who's like Wade. And he's like clearly a wild cannon or whatever. So they hire this minder to keep him from getting into bar fights and things like that. And at the end of the book, they send an email to Alex whenever he like flips out on a fan and isn't nice to them. And they insult Lauren, his minder's appearance. She is described as short. They say she looks like a little bird. She's depicted as unlovely. Unlovely, yes. And they say some really truly mean things about her, like put a bag over her head, although that won't fix all of her problems. If you have a problem with Lauren following you around and they CC Lauren on the email, that's a crazy thing to do. But this script excerpt is the like first indication. I think in this book, there's not going to be like a lot of nuance to the villainy. So here's the, and I immediately just slid to it randomly. Gods of the Gate, Season 1, Episode 3, Exterior, Mountainside, Cave, Dusk. Juno waits inside the entrance, half in shadows, expression calm and righteous. When Leda ventures within, Juno makes no sudden movements, aware that the woman her husband has wronged, yet another woman he has violated, has no reason to trust her and may fear the vengeance of a possessive wife. Juno, trust my goodwill if you can. I no longer find relief in petty jealousy and am no longer foolish enough to blame a mortal maiden for the rapaciousness of an all-powerful god. Leda, I would not have betrayed you, Mother Juno, not if resistance were in my power. All right. And then we go to God of the Gates. That's a brief reading. Gods of the Gates, Season 6, Episode 2. Interior, Aeneas and Lavinia's home. Night. Lavinia waits by the fire. She's pissed. He's been fucking Anna, Dido's sister. She knows it. Aeneas enters the house. Lavinia, where have you been, my husband? Aeneas, that is not your concern. Whatever. He doesn't need this shit. When Lavinia cries, he walks away. Like, first of all, that first script is meant to be like an adaptation of a book. And the idea is like a room full of writers would just like completely be able to like fully understand the nuance of the text and the way the author intended, which is superior to the way that like these showrunners are like the showrunners are in the room both times, probably more so in the first section, like this huge gulf between season one and season six and like the tone of the scripts is jarring in a way that feels disingenuous. It's like the only project of that interstitial is to show what bad people the showrunners are, but it doesn't take into consideration like... How shows are run. How shows are run, (laughs) exactly. I think a lot of people understand that, especially people who are invested in fandom. I mean, yes, although the scripts that leaked about season six for Game of Thrones that this is based on, like if you do a side-by-side comparison from season one to season six you can see a marked difference in both the tonality of the language used and in like the exterior and stuff this is a dramatization of that internet leak and it is all for the effect of showing these people as like one-dimensional villains and i think like that's too bad there's also a moment in here where the cast is all on a group chat talking about how the showrunners are more excited about their sky wars project and like thinly veiled reference to the fact that the showrunners have Game of Thrones had been greenlit to do Star Wars stuff, a new trilogy. They had been greenlit to do the show 
show. And when I first heard it, I was immediately upset because, and this eventually came out. They like released a trailer and everything for the series before HBO caught up with it. Really popular cult film made by this great professor, Academy Award winning writer at the University of Kansas, works with Spike Lee a lot, film director Kevin Wilmot. He created this cult film called Confederate States of America, which aired constantly on IFC, which is like a reimagining of like what the United States would have been like if the Confederacy had won the Civil War. And that was their entire concept. And it was also like watching the trailer. It was like not just conceptually, but like the whole tone felt ripped off. Like the production design felt like a ripoff. And they absolutely did not credit CSA and Kevin Wilmot at all with that concept. And rightfully, it got yanked. But like it does speak quite a bit to, you know, I thought that the reference was to George R. R. Martin's other series about time traveling World War II fighter pilots. I think there's a reference to the author in that, too. But like the project they were working on for HBO, the Confederate States of America, rightfully yanked. But they had also been in talks and had a green light from Kathleen Kennedy for a new Star Wars trilogy. So they had multiple tongs in the fires during season six, which was part of the criticism that they weren't fully engaged with the final season of Thrones, that they were thinking of other shit. They were thinking about their exits, which like on the one hand, like as a fan, like, sure, I'm upset about that. But on the other, like as a person in the world who like needs to think about other projects, like when this one ends, like it makes sense to me that writers and showrunners would be lining up their next projects, which is also something that this book deals with with Marcus because of his inability and his like lack of desire to want to capitalize on his Aeneas fame for the next film. Like he's having a hard time lining something else up. Well, this is one of those showbiz romances that doesn't understand showbiz as a show business, right? It seems to really frame like creative work as like solely about passion and engagement, you know, as opposed to like an actual job. And, you know, the the like negative feedback to like, oh, the reason this show isn't going to be as good in season six is because the showrunners are engaged in other projects. It's like, well, then that would give the showrunners a lot of credit for being really good at running the show up to that point. And those are at odds, right? And it speaks to like a desire to have like an easy solve for the problems of an artistic work when actually they're like really complicated. And they're not just complicated in the way that like we live under late capital, but complicated in the fact that like being creative, being a creative who can produce content is also all like swirling with like feelings and energy and external like inspiration and just like generally like not feeling up to it. You know, it's like this soup. And so being like these two people weren't there. So it bad is. I think that's interesting that you say that, like this swirling soup that like the people who are doing the creative work also require things. I think you're right to say that this book has a very narrow view of the two showrunners that it's lampooning. But this book has what I would consider a great amount of empathy for Marcus and like how his dyslexia and his parents' failure to diagnose and recognize that early enough. Like his parents are classicists, right? They work in Greek and Roman mythology. They hate his show. They've never liked any of his movies. He's an only child who constantly disappoints his parents. And like that as a trauma that he works on and like a trauma that is informing decisions that he makes. Also that after devoting eight years of his life, not only to this character, but then the character that he becomes as a star. This book spends a lot of time talking about how that is both damaging and like what it will take to undo that in the public image and like what it will cost both in terms of capital in terms of money that he could lose from not being what he set the expectation of as this beautiful Labrador who is thoughtless when he's actually a very thoughtful human and this book I thought was like very empathetic to that problem in ways that I was both deeply moved and surprised by this book doesn't need a villain. Yeah, this book doesn't need a villain, but it creates so many and just like a very particular kind of villain as well, which is like a very melodramatic villain, right? Like mustache twirlingly evil. And I think the other place that this perspective comes to bear that is in fact way more central to our characters are their parents. Yes. So we talked about 
our hero's parents who were very ashamed of him. And I would say in in the book's perspective, they are ashamed of their son who is dyslexic, has dyslexia, and is also sporty and relies on his extremely good looks. They don't like that about him. So he spitefully plays up those like shallow personality ideals and he also kind of relies on those same shallow ideals to get through interviews. And it prevents him from having to share his actual opinions on the show, which he obviously has very strong opinions about. And it also is a way for him to, like, I think, lovably reconcile an episode where his dyslexia was made public without, you know, being named. So he was doing an interview during the promotion of season one, and someone asked him to read out loud from the book a particularly steamy scene, and he agrees to do it, but he had no time to prep for it. So he has difficulty making his way through the words, and everyone is uncomfortable in the live studio audience. But like when I think about how the book handles that memory... Everything is explained, like why he chose to do it. Like he was himself comfortable in the context of like in his personal life, he has accepted his diagnosis and he's learned how to live with it in a way that's like not only productive, but like he is now writing and everything like he's reconciled that part of himself to the point where he hasn't thought of how other people will perceive it anymore. He has moved on and then he has this like rupture. It reminds me of like people who are recovering alcoholics who feel like they're ready to go to like a party where there's going to be booze. Yes. And then what that's actually like after months or even years of being sober and surrounded by sober people and reading accounts of that. That's what it reminded me of is like being like, oh, there's actually an entire world of people and you can't control their perceptions. And so his way of dealing with that is to be like, yeah, I'm just like a lovable dummy. I'm just a him. Yeah, that's me. And having to maintain that facade, which everyone on the show understands as a facade, including the PR team, as well as, you know, acting as his profession. Right. It was incredibly it was so like moving to read. And it was moving because it like really thought through, like, how does someone come here and what does it feel like to be wrong? And how do you adapt? It was just like so reasoned and really lovely. I think there were so many moments in this book like that, that it feels jarring then to think about the villainy of his parents who are not given this kind of empathetic treatment or her dad or the showrunners. Right. Or even her mother, who the character is constantly saying, like, she's a good person and she loves me. And then, like, the first or second act, however you want to slice it, when she's talking about how her mother hurts her but also loves her. What I find interesting about that is, like, it feels so true, right? As people who inhabit women's bodies, right? And, and women's bodies are this separate, objectified entity in the world. Our mothers have a relationship, truly have a responsibility to prepare you for how the world will experience you physically. And a lot of mothers have struggled with their own body image and how they have been able to move through the world. And they impart that anxiety onto their daughters. And this book understands that like, so our heroine, her mother was very thin and then she had a child and or in the first year of her marriage, she gained about 50 pounds and then her husband stopped taking her out in public. And so then she like immediately lost the weight and maintained her figure even right after her, her pregnancy. And our heroine starts to gain weight in puberty. Her father starts to demonstrate this same kind of like unnamed shame in her appearance, right? I think that does speak to like a patriarch's understanding of like family as an extension of self. Yes. And what that communication is to the outside world in terms of value and women's bodies have more value if they're thin. Yeah. The book never engages with that idea. It never engages with the fact that like maybe he has some of his own self-hatred going on here. It also thinks of like love and cruelty as two completely separate things, which is convenient, but it's not true. Like her mother. So this is my perception. And I want to know what you think about the relationship between our heroine and her mother. I think the book understands the relationship or the way I read it because I was so uncomfortable reading about it and I couldn't figure out why. And so I picked at it and picked at it and picked at it. And I think the book understands the mother's discomfort with the daughter's body, the heroine's body, as being hung up on like not seeing her as a whole person. 
being very shallow or like a more interesting way, a more nuanced, a more cathartic read for me would have been the mother understanding that the world is different and not in a nice way if you move through it with that kind of body and wants to encourage her to have like all the options, opportunities that are available to a woman available to her. Yeah, no, that's exactly how I read it. I'm surprised that you didn't read it that way, especially because like when the mom says it will be easier for you if you are a different size. And when she says things like that, or even in the final conflict at the height of the second act, when she's confronting her mother about these kinds of comments about like, oh, maybe wear black. And she's like, that's hurtful to me. Like, this is the size I am. I'm proud of my body. And like, I need you to be there too. And like her mom starts crying and immediately brings up this thing about the dad where it's like, I think the dad is the cipher for society and acceptance where it's like your value here is being read. I did read that love and cruelty are in this moment and in a lot of lives of mothers and daughters constitutive and like that there's a generational gap here, but there's also a real understanding like that her mother was horrifically harmed by her husband's fat shaming and like continues. And so like all of the stuff about wearing black, all of the stuff about salads, all of this sort of like, it'll just be easier, babe. That does clearly come across as a place of love. And one of the things that I was uncomfortable with in reading this from like the daughter perspective is understanding that like I feel like I've seen this scene before like Tia Leone in Spanglish has a very similar scene with her pubescent daughter where she buys the beautiful suit for her but in two sizes smaller than the daughter actually is and like the love and cruelty in it where it's like if you are thinner you have more options because our society sucks and I want that for you. I want the clear vista of a horizon because I know how cruel the world is. But the cruelty of the gift itself, this thing that this girl wanted so much in a size that she cannot be. And like, oh, like there's a line in here that is like love is sharp. And like, that's what that felt like to me, that like there is a real cutting edge to love. Yeah, well, there's that whole interstitial from the original books that this TV show is based on that talks about the difference between like the point and the Mm, blade and the handle of a sword, right? Which is really good. good. But listening to you talk about it, right? Like the dad is this cipher for society. I think what's interesting about the dad is that like he never directly addresses weight in his own right. Like he never tells his wife, like, I'm not taking you out because you're too fat. He just stops taking her out, which I think is how so much societal policing goes. But whenever you say like her mother wants things to be easier for her, and I think this is where this falters for me, is that her mother's wants her daughter to have an easier time finding a romantic partner. And the book seems interested in our heroine as being like a whole person without a partner Mm -hmm. and uses the mother's singular focus on that as a way to, I think, contrast our heroine with this like more regressive idea of femininity, right? That you need to have a partner in your life to be whole. And yet the book makes it so that our heroine is made whole by the hero. Like when she goes into that scene, I think it's her mom's birthday lunch. And her mom is like, oh, you've been dating this guy for a while. Your father and I would love to meet him. And she has built up this fantasy in her head that when they get there, her boyfriend is going to like hold her hand the whole time. And he'll go into this conversation about boundaries with her to talk to her mother. And she is immediately upset because he goes off and talks to her father, right? Her great nemesis. And she has to go and talk to her mother alone about boundaries. And later on, when she's arguing with him, she's like, I didn't tell you that's what I needed. So I had no right to like be upset about the fact that you didn't give it to me. And he thought he was doing the right thing by like taking dad on so that she didn't have to interact with him. Right. But his like extreme morose guilt over not holding her hand throughout this private conversation with her mother demonstrates that I think the book actually thinks that like he should have been there in the room and like that was his purpose and that was his function in that space and I also think like why is it important to her that he goes and holds her hand in front of her parents right and like this comes up in the grand finale of the novel our big HEA 
day at the convention. And the book keeps saying, like, it's good to show, like, that someone who looks like her is worthy of love, is desirable, right? By this incredibly desirable man. Exactly. This book the whole time is trying to demonstrate that, like, our traditional beauty standards shouldn't matter while absolutely salivating over abs. Oh, yeah. This guy is super fucking hot. Like, he is, like, stop traffic gorgeous in this book. And not just stop traffic gorgeous, but guess what? His outsides match his insides. He's a really cool person. I like that his outsides match his insides. I think you're exactly right. Like, this is almost like a pretty woman scene where she goes back to that clerk who's rude to her and is like, big mistake. That's like the feeling, the emotive of bringing this guy to her parents where she's like, big mistake, fuckers. Look at this guy. He's so hot and he fucks me. Which is objectification. (laughs) Yes, it is. And it's also trying to dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. Absolutely. And it's also not even about like beauty as we understand it because at every turn we're told how beautiful the heroine is. It's about weight not being a good beauty standard, right? Specifically, like all of the other things, it's not like it's like she had bad teeth also and he saw through all of that. Like, no, she's like a beautiful woman who is fat. I guess like I'm not convinced This might be unpopular, but I'm not convinced this is the revolutionary idea that the book thinks it is. That by objectifying a very hot man and like saying that like a fat woman is deserving of this particular man's love. Yeah. That we have somehow undone or are beginning to undo the bad work of fat shaming. Yeah. Sure. Like I buy that. And I think one of the messy parts of this book, right, is their first misunderstanding as a couple is he's like, I want to see you again. I want to see you right away. They've shared this really romantic kiss. And then he's like, well, I I have this work to do. I have to be in L.A. She lives in San Francisco. For those of you not familiar with California's massive geography, that's an eight hour drive. And so he's like, you could come to my hotel before I leave and like we could work out and then like brunch. Like there's like oatmeal and whatever. And she's like, you want me to work out with you? And she immediately reads that as like, here's a man trying to fix her when she's done all of this work to try to make herself okay. And he's like, I don't have time to do anything else before I go to the airport. And I think one of the things that this book does really well is talk about like the insidiousness of fat shaming and how fat shaming changes the lens in which you view the world when you have been othered and fat shamed for so long. And that like she doesn't give him grace, like she doesn't give him the benefit of the doubt. And he doesn't know because like he's never dated a woman who is fat or like, I guess, been around people who have like a small (laughs) BMI. Like that felt like a very obvious misstep anyway. But like that she doesn't have the capacity to give that grace except in retrospect and that he doesn't know that kind of stuff up front. And like, I thought this book dealt with that kind of messiness really well because like they have that scene. Yeah. And then in her apartment, she's like, I want to order takeout like fried rice. And he's like, I need to have a lean protein and some greens. Like you could almost feel her back go up in the book. And he's like, it's not about you. I have to maintain this body for my paycheck. I have to say, we cannot overstate how weird that scene is. Yeah. Yeah. So they've just gone on a donut tour. They go back to her apartment to have sex after feeling each other up in someone's front lawn in Berkeley. (laughs) And like she is like, oh, I'm hungry. I've only had since I've just moved into this new apartment. The only things I have in my fridge are some cold pizza and some fried rice. What would you like? And he comes up behind her and wraps his arms around her into a standing spoon position. And he says... You know I can't have either of those things after I had a combination croissant donut muffin. And she tenses, right? And he feels her tense up. And he like holds onto her and is like talking at her ear behind her is like, my body is just a tool, but I have to maintain it. So like she is so like deeply connected to her body and he is so deeply disconnected from his, right? He is able to like objectively like manage his body, right? Whereas she is forced to like subjectively manage the way other people approach her body at all times. And I think like in a book that is putting so much value on subjectivity overall, right? Like the fact that the showrunners did a bad job once they got distracted with other things. The fact that his parents are only looking at the text of the work that he's in as opposed to like their son being a part of it and they're being so critical of it. 
So it feels like it's devaluing that objective relationship with his body is meaningless. I think you're so right. Like this book is very good with like the messiness of like being defensive and how you arrive at that place. But it has this real blind spot for the messiness of like all of the value statements it's creating throughout the text. And the value he is forced to place then on his own body and the value she places on it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is a definite blind spot in the text. And I think like, I am curious if this is a first salvo in a larger discussion in romance about different kinds of bodies and what that love will look like, or if this is truly a fix-it fic for Jamie and Brienne. Yeah. And like... I loved Jamie and Brienne, and I actually get really excited when I see relationships between men and women in television that have chemistry, but do not necessarily have like some sort of like explicitly sexual resolution. Because I think just like our heroine's mother, we put this huge amount of value. And I know I'm saying this as I record a podcast about romance novels, but we put this huge value on romantic relationships as like the only way to express affection and value for a person. And so I think for a lot of people, the fact that like Jamie doesn't end up with Brienne, spoiler alert for <laughs> for whatever reason, I won't go into it meaning the plot points. But like the fact that he feels like a devaluation of Brienne, but it's like, is it a devaluation of her? Or is it just like you putting a lot of value on a romantic relationship as the point at which someone is considered a worthwhile member of society? Or like that value is able to be articulated in a particular way that we can all understand. I think that's interesting. I don't want to get super into my Game of Thrones criticism of the final season here because I still want to talk about weirdest part public sexuality and sexist part but the thing I think about Brienne that was so hurtful in that final season and I think what this fix it fit is working on and why April is so body positive why she's both defensive but also really strong and she also has like a very rich life outside of Marcus like she writes this fanfic she does this cosplay like she has all these friends like she's really building a life she's just left a job that she didn't like for a better job like I don't think I've ever read a heroine who was this together with the one exception of her fucked up relationship with her parents Like part of the fantasy for me of this book is like how fucking awesome April's life is. But for Brienne in particular, it's that like she loses her virginity to Jamie and then he leaves the next day. And it's like, well, could we just not have them have sex at all then? Could we have done it any other way but this? Like because like the sexuality, I think you're exactly right. Like the apex of two heteros getting together is like that's the Everest. But we also put so much weird shit on virginity and then he fucking leaves and then she she is like gutted in that scene and they spend so much time in her close up like she actually falls to her knees. I'm like, that doesn't feel good or appropriate or like the thing that Brienne, the character would do. Well, Jamie is not a romantic hero. He's not. He's an incestuous asshole. Yes. And I think the series was like, it was wrong for you to believe people are way too <laughs> into this guy. They have really lost the plot because whoopsie, we did that thing we always do where we cast like a charismatic, handsome person in this role and now everybody likes him. So charismatic, that actor. So charismatic. God, his nose is so good. But also like, I mean, she's not the mother of his children slash sister. Yeah, I was fine with Jamie leaving, but did we have to then freight it with this sexual episode? I think they did because they had to reiterate like how important everything else was to him and what a dick he could be because of it. Maybe. It's weird, like, with Jamie, his dedication to his family is his, like, undoing. Whereas, like, with Cersei, it's, like, her only redeeming quality, which speaks a lot to our feminine-masculine dichotomy, right? True story. In a lot of insidious ways. It's so weird, but the show had to be like, look at how much this bastard loves his kids. (laughs) Even though a bunch of them are already dead. He's gotta go and avenge them and protect the only one that's maybe left, but maybe a tumor. Like, it's... I definitely thought it was cancer. I I did too. But I I think I think it's just like, you know, my sister would love your take. Like she stands the last season pretty hard. We had some pretty 
pretty spicy conversations. Heated conversations. I just think like a dull thud is the only way it could end because that's what the message is, is like all of this drama, all of this violence, all of this sex is ultimately just to repeat the cycle. I think that's why it's good. And I also think they did some pretty daring stuff with their cinematography and their editing. They got pretty experimental technically in the final season. I don't think it always worked, but I love the fact that they took like one of the biggest budgets in television and said, we're doing what we want to do. We're going to try something. Okay. Only on HBO, baby. Only on HBO. Let's get to weirdest part, sexiest part. Where do you want to start? Uh, let's do weirdest first. So I have two weirdest parts. So should I do my weirdest part first? Sure. I wrote it down and then allowed it to leave my mind. Small weirdest part I didn't like, but then redeemed itself. Her hatred of a folk music cover mm, band. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then she eventually joins that folk music. She's like, they should know. One of my weirdest parts is like her insistence on integrating her personal life and her professional life. Yes. By like letting everyone at work know that she is into cosplay and fanfic. Yeah writes fan fiction and does cosplay and it's like it doesn't need to be an announcement like I can understand being like oh I'm okay with this and so I'm not gonna like purposely obfuscate it and that's ultimately what leads to our romantic relationship kicking off because she's about to start her new job so she posts a cosplay picture on her personal twitter and is like this is what I physically look like and she realizes that she's bringing her body into her virtual world and you know kind of do which is great I loved I loved I loved the beginning and then of course she receives a lot of hate and then so our hero is absolutely white knighting like there's this thing okay I'm getting into a lot of weird parts her need to integrate her personal and professional life in the beginning was really weird to me but eventually I think it like resolved itself because like she becomes a part of her office's like folk group and I think it demonstrates that when you are accepting of yourself it allows you to be more accepting of others So she didn't have to have a superiority complex about folk music throughout the book. So that was my coolest part. My weirdest part, I don't want to say just like the third act. At the con? During the breakup. So they break up because she finds out that he was her beta reader and best friend, right? Secretly this whole time they've been the same person and she feels lied to. Book Aeneas would never. Yeah, because she feels like he knows so much about her personally, and she did not have the same benefit of making that connection. And, you know, the book does demonstrate many times how defensive she is, which I think is so earned and such a good, consistent character development. But there are other times when I feel like the text itself has a blind spot for that stuff. And also a blind spot for its own setup. So she's going to have this moment where she's going to tell her mother, I have these boundaries. You can't talk to me about my body and I don't want to spend time with dad anymore because it causes me too much grief. But she approaches that conversation where she tells her mom, we need to talk while her mom is preparing her own birthday lunch, takes her into a bedroom and then just lists out her boundaries. Her mom is, I think, understandably shocked. Yes, is really upset and starts crying. And she leaves by being like, after you've had some time to think about it, you can give me a call. And I have to say, like, this book understands the protagonist as the protagonist to its detriment. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, we oftentimes think of ourselves as the protagonist in our parents' lives. I did. Did this book help you, like, identify that? <laughs> no. I. So what happened was my parents, for their anniversary, went on a trip to Las Vegas, just the two of them, when I was in college. I found out about it, and I was horrified. Because <laughs> they didn't take you? Yes. <laughs> They didn't even tell us about, like, you know, they didn't tell us about it in what I considered, like, a meaningful way, which is an invitation. It wasn't like, I need to know if you two are leaving the state of Kansas. Like, no, I was like, I've never been to Vegas as an adult and you didn't pay for me to go. Like, that was why I was upset. But, like, why I was actually upset is that I was like, you guys have fun without me? Are having fun without me. Like, you have a life without me? And, like, she only assumes her father's cruelty. She doesn't ever give any credence to, like, the difficulty of what it means to be a housewife. But also, like, how her mother feels. Like, her father is such a, like, nothing but, like, a Sauron. Mm -hmm. He's just a looming dark shadow drawing everyone to him. You don't get a sense of her mother as a person, either. Because she's just this small sheep person who needs to be talked at, which is like the same thing her father does. 
sense. Yeah, you nailed it on the head when you said that this book understands its protagonist as to its own detriment. And I think like this book takes so much time in the DMs between her and Marcus and like the stuff that they do in the fandoms and also the weird interstitials of his like growth as an actor from these like weird Christmas Hallmark movies. It's like I loved those. Did you? I was like, that's my weirdest part because I'm like, there was time then to discuss mom. There was time to have at least a more like filling out, even if it's just watercolor without detail. Like there was time in this book to do that and to think about like the role, especially as an adult of daughter to like help mom usher through some new and better boundaries so that they can have a more meaningful adult relationship. And the fact that she's done all this internal work without ever considering what that external work is going to look like, because it is work to tell people what you need, but also then how they can help achieve that, right? Like that's how the relation moves. It gives her so much credit as like a person with deep internality, but she never considers that other people besides Marcus also have a deep internality. Absolutely. And there's this other moment where she's at the con after they've broken up, right? And he's taken a stand for himself, which is to say he's given a really thoughtful, considered response to a question on a panel about character development, which is a big deal for him. And she finds out that his co-star has also been writing fic as like a response to Marcus sharing that he writes fan fiction. And she discovers that Marcus has this other ghost account that he developed during their relationship that tells all these romantic stories. And she says this thing where she's like, of course he didn't care about my size, but I should have known that from the way that we meant. And I was like, you mean whenever he like took you on a date just to demonstrate that he didn't care about your fatness? As a PR stunt? Yeah. And like, I know that he like didn't mean it as a PR stunt, but like his whole reason for defending her was that people were making fun of her weight. So her weight is the central mover there. (laughs) And I think it's another one of those moments when it like forgets its own storyline. So I loved the interstitial, like terrible scripts. And I kind of wish there were a series of like short novellas written by other romance novelists telling these stories of like, oh, I would love that. Without her, he would be in the weeds forever whenever he's a chef and like, oh, it's so good. Some of those were good. I liked some more than others, I will say. Like the Dosey Danger, I thought was very funny. Like this book is really functioning on puns really well. And like, that's one of the things that like fandom and romance and romance Landy are really good at. Like the word play in this book is super enjoyable and like there were moments where like I skipped over some of them I read some of them like it was sort of like pick or choose your own adventure in the same way that I operate in fandom my weirdest part is that she's able to afford that beautiful one bedroom apartment in San Francisco well it's in Berkeley too isn't it yeah I was like there's absolutely no fucking way as like some sort of public works servant surveying fucking dirt you can afford this gorgeous apartment well and also yeah there's weird stuff with class in this novel which writers if you really want to reveal something about yourself try and talk about the cost of things (laughs) in a novel and we'll learn a lot like at one point she's like I'm embarrassed about my tiny apartment he's like you forget I'm the child of two prep school teachers and I was like uh prep school teachers make a lot of money yeah especially if they have PhDs like that might be like fucking six figures in a place like Berkeley so like Anyway, their house is like super adorable and cute bungalow that his parents have. His poverty hovel, as he describes it. <laughs> that like you can walk down and see the bay. I'm like, that real estate is so expensive. Like, what the fuck? I know. So that's my weirdest part. What's your sexiest part? Like, I imagine this is one of your weirdest parts, too. I love that they get caught having public sex. And also her outfit is so good. She's wearing like this moto jacket and she's got like these sweet pants. And like he just has to get his hands on her. And it's like this bright, sunny, beautiful bay day. And then like there's like this weirdo hippie who's like watering his begonia. And he's he's, like, get a room. But he's like mad. I loved it. I was like, There is another public sex scene. Clearly, Isabel and I feel differently about this, where I'm like, I think people should be... Cons- it's daytime, too. Oh, yeah. It's like 11 o'clock in the morning, and they are, like, up against a railing. He's, like, lifted her up, ass cheeks over knees. A railing? Like, not even, like, a tree. Like, if it was a tree, I would be like... It's somebody's garden gate. The trees belong to everyone. But a fence? Private property. <laughs> a fence? 
it's it's like going into someone's house at 11 a.m. and dry humping in their living room. I absolutely not. And there's another point where they're in a fucking family-oriented geology museum. <laughs> And they use the vibration of an earthquake simulator to literally, he humps her leg using an earthquake simulator. There is discussion of children squealing in the background. They are. They are literally there. And he's bouncing his erection (laughs) off her leg. And like. It's like near her butt. It's like he's behind her. Oh, pardon moi. He's bouncing his turgid erection off of her butt in an earthquake simulator once again before 12 p.m. Pacific time. Children are in the same tiny simulated Victorian living room. (laughs) As someone who was a tour guide, I can see you. I'm not TV. I know what you're doing, and I'm definitely too uncomfortable to say anything because hopefully the children have You can't pay attention to it. <laughs> you can't just let them. And to top it all off, like, the fucking star of Game of Thrones is doing it? He was wearing a baseball cap like Chris Evans. <laughs> oh, he was wearing a baseball cap. He had aviators on. You couldn't tell who. Stop. Just. Oh, my God. Yeah, no one... I was literally picturing Chris Evans humping someone in that scene. Wearing a baseball cap and aviator sunglasses so that if they don't recognize you, people will just think you're definitely like a fucking weirdo (laughs) who wears sunglasses and a baseball cap in a family geology museum. I mean, it's either Tony Stark or a Secret Service member or you're a weirdo. Like, those are the options. Or you're a weirdo who doesn't want people to know that he's staring at their private parts. (laughs) It's Tony Stark. I loved it. Or both. Or both. I mean, like, sure, absolutely. I was deeply into it. The vibration of the earthquake simulator in the Victorian room for the Great Earthquake of 1908. Oh, my God. And literally children squealing. I loved it. It's so hard for me to pick out a sexiest part because the sexual parts of it are written very appealingly. Mm -hmm. And then it's broken by like the context and the fact that the context literally interrupts parts of the sex scene that it was actually kind of hard. Like I wish they would have had like a private sex scene before that stuff. Sure. And also like the idea that it's not a whoopsie. It's not like either of them is like thinking like, does the other person know that I'm pushing into them on purpose they're both like "Ooh, i'm a fully formed sexual adult i'm gonna like do this on someone's lawn full of cronut too belly full of cronut and too much coffee i will admit i was thinking that too i'm like oh i'd be so bloated bubble guts bubble guts but that also made it hotter because like sometimes like i just loved it so hedonistic and it was so sunny I would say my sexiest part was the first love scene that occurs after the super weird cronut scene on someone's lawn and the super weird in front of the refrigerator like my body is nothing conversation. And it's because I actually really loved that context that we don't see a lot. And I think it's important that not only was our heroine fat, but she was having sex for the first time with someone in broad daylight. Like it talks about how the curtains are open, it's middle of the day, like all of this now natural sunlight is washing in like this gauzy you know it just sounds like beautiful light and then to like allow yourself to be that vulnerable in the first moments with someone showing your body I thought that was very sexy I did too and the sex scenes are great they really are when there aren't children in them I mean I like that too all right romance or nomance this is a romance I'm gonna recommend this to everybody I know in fan fiction I had such a good time like once I really let myself like read it and give myself the opportunity I finished it so fast like it's like a cupcake I just shoved it down my gullet I loved it okay so I actually believe that this is like a deserved blockbuster romance like it feels like there's so much opportunity like I would love little novellas written by other romance novelists that kind of flesh out the film stories which are so great I wish there was like a glossary of fan fiction terms like I wish there was more there I don't know if I got like the romance novel stuff that I wanted out of it like the angst was a little too like I don't want to say juvenile the angst was like manufactured 
manufactured, but also kind of petty. Like, you know, the fact that it doesn't have a lot of empathy, but insists on a lot of empathy without giving it really made me uncomfortable. Like the angst just made me frustrated. It reminded me of like revenge fantasies I had as a teenager when my parents would be like disciplining me, you know, and I'd be like, I'll show them as opposed to like being a holistic idea of other human beings. And I think the sex scenes, like, I can appreciate that they were good, but maybe because I have that hang up about the particular public sex scenes, which seems to be, like, so present in all of the contemporary romances we've read. I was going to say, it's a real move. That's actually something that maybe I want to think about for like a series is like why public sex has become the move versus other kinds and like why is this happening so much? And like I also think like it's happening more in contemporary historicals, like historicals written now. Public sex is a thing. It's having a moment. And I think like my problem with the public sex scenes in this book is the same problem I have with the angst in this book, which is that it's not considerate of other people. (laughs) I fully appreciate and respect the fact that like it's a romance novel it's fantasy and like you're the only people that matter is appealing whenever you're dabbling in fantasy it's just not for me I'm gonna say it's a no man's we haven't disagreed in a long time we haven't it's also like a very soft disagree <laughs> I mean like I'm gonna recommend this to everybody I think this is a great book I really love this this might even be one like I bought it like in a paper copy I might keep it yeah I also want to say like recognizing this is like a very good hybrid between a clench and a illustrated clench covers are also illustrated (laughs) that's true but I, I like this cover I like the amount of detail in it I love how the heroine's body looks and that it really looks sexy as well as realistic I really appreciated that cover I do too I think it's a good cover although I'm not a super huge fan of the turquoise and pink well there it is Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. Also, tune in for our deep dive into how we disagree about the sixth season of Game of Thrones at some other point. Podcasted. I've said my piece. Podcasted a podcast. uh, Brian and Jamie forever. I've said my piece. All right. Uh, With that, if you could just real quick loosen your stays for me. But never your principles. Mwah. Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabel. That's me. And Morgan. That's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah.